Today's sermon comes from John 6, 1 through 14. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. As the family was finishing dinner, the eight-year-old daughter left six green beans on her plate. She normally ate her veggies, and the father did not usually allow this sort of thing to bother him, but this night he was irked, and he said to her, eat your green beans. She replied, dad, I'm full to the top. You won't pop, he responded. Yes, I will pop, she said. Risk it, he said. It'll be okay. Dad, I could not eat another bite. He knew that night they were having her favorite dessert, pumpkin pumpkin pie squares. So he asked, how would you like a double helping of pumpkin pie squares with two dollops of whipped cream on top? That sounds great, she responded as she pushed her plate back ready for dessert. Now, many of you have experienced this. How can you have room for a double helping of pumpkin pie squares with two dollops of whipped cream and not have room for six measly green beans? Now, this is good. I haven't experienced this, but this is brilliant. She stood up tall out of her chair, pointing to her belly, and said, this is my vegetable stomach. This is my meat stomach. They are both full. Here is my dessert stomach. It is empty. I am ready for dessert. That's brilliant. Some of you are like, I'm so glad my child's in children's worship. Bad ideas coming from the pulpit. You know, what we eat reveals what we hunger for. What we desire to eat reveals what we hunger for. How we spend our time reveals what we hunger for. What we listen to, what we watch reveals what we hunger for. We are a deeply desiring people. We have been created with such deep, deep desires. And yet oftentimes we find that our deep uh, hunger is insatiable. That our deep thirst can't be quenched. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he addresses this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction 
for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So the question is, how are our unsatisfied desires satisfied? How does this story of, of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, what does it tell us about how he satisfies our hunger? And to answer this, we're gonna, we're gonna ask three questions. Who does Jesus satisfy? How does he satisfy? And what does he satisfy? So let's start with the first question. Who does Jesus satisfy? He answers this question through his interaction with Philip and Andrew in verses five to nine, and then he's gonna explain it even further in verses 41 to 45. What I'll be doing is we, we read the actual miracle, but the last half of chapter six is Jesus actually explaining what the miracle means. So if you have a Bible or whatever you're using, we're gonna be looking at the last half of chapter six periodically as we, as we move from the actual miracle to how Jesus explains it. But what we see in verses five to nine is you've got uh, Jesus going up to a mountain with his disciples. And as he gets up there, there's a large crowd that starts pressing in. And Jesus has this interaction with Philip and Andrew. As the crowd presses in, Jesus says to Philip in verse five, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, in verse six, Jesus gives his motivation of why he asked that question. He says he wanted to test Philip because he knew what he was gonna do. In other words, Jesus knew that he was gonna miraculously feed these 5,000, which by the way, that's, that's men only. With women and children, this is probably 5,000 plus. Jesus knew he was gonna do it, but he was testing Philip. He was trying to get Philip and Andrew to understand something. And so what is Philip's answer? He says 200 denarii would not buy enough bread to feed them just a little bit. Now, one denarius was a day's wage. So what Philip says is more than half a year's salary will not even get it done. And then what's Andrew say? Andrew says, well, here's a little boy. He's got a little lunchbox, five barley loaves and two fish, but that's not gonna do it. And that's the whole point. The re when it says that Jesus was testing them, Jesus was trying to move them to the place where they were beyond their ability. They didn't know how they would feed the crowd. They, they couldn't even figure out how to pay for feeding the crowd. And that's exactly where Jesus wanted them to be, was in a place of empty handedness, a place of, of not being able to provide, not having the answer, empty handedness and humility. And then Jesus is gonna explain it even further over in verses 41 to 45. And what we find there is that this is after he does the miracle, he starts explaining himself. And in verses 41 to 45, the Jews are grumbling. They're complaining. 
Why? Because Jesus says he's bread come down from heaven. And they say, no, you're the son of Joseph. We know your mom. <laughs> what is this coming down from heaven bit? And Jesus' response is, is, is intriguing. Look what he says in verse 43. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And then he says in verse 45, he quotes Isaiah 54, 13. He says, and they will all be taught by God. See, Jesus is drawing on Israel's history, specifically the exodus out of Egypt. And Isaiah 54 is when they're in exile in Babylon, absolutely helpless, unable to help themselves. And so the drawing on the Exodus story is that God delivered his people out of Egypt, part of the Red Sea, and then brought them into the desert where he fed them manna or bread, which is really, and you're going to see later, is at the core of this story, is that this is a reenactment. It's a fulfillment of the Exodus story and the manna in the desert. And what Jesus is pointing out is that one of the hardest things for Israel to get their hands around was that they were not rescued out of Egypt because of anything good in them. It wasn't because they were a great nation. It wasn't because they were a particularly moral or godly people. That's why Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. He's reminding them, listen, when I rescued you out of Egypt, there was nothing in you that would have merited me rescuing you. It was all my doing. And what we're going to see is that their grumbling was evidence that they believed there was something that they deserved. It's called entitlement. I'm going to get to it here in a second. But because God rescued them of no merit to themselves, then therefore God was not at their beck and call. He wasn't obliged to them. They didn't deserve anything from him. That he simply rescued them, as Deuteronomy says, because he loved them. You know, C.S. Lewis, he was interviewed by an American journalist who was doing this project of uh, well-known people who had come to Christ and converted in their adult years. And this, this journalist's uh, theme was the decision. And he wanted to get C.S. Lewis to tell him when he, quote, made the decision to follow Christ. And uh, C.S. Lewis wasn't very cooperative. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he wouldn't give him that language. He said, no, I, God chased me down <laughs> and wouldn't let me go even when I wanted to get loose. I didn't make a decision. The closest he got to using this journalist's language was to say, I was decided upon. <laughs> I was decided upon by God. Who does Jesus satisfy? He satisfies the empty-handed. He satisfies the humble. He satisfies those who believe they bring nothing to the table for salvation. Not even a wise decision. That there's nothing in us that merits God saving us or rescuing us. Now, why is this such an important point? And why in verse 43, when he says, they were grumbling and then no one comes to me unless the Father draws him, it seems like an odd combination. It's not odd at all. Because if you function with some sort of entitlement attitude, and by that I mean that inside your heart, not necessarily what you profess intellectually, because we can say the right things, but if there's something in you that says, God owes me something, 
or that God, um, that I deserve something from God or that I deserve some sort of comfortable life or good life. If you've got that in your heart, then you will not live a life of satisfaction and contentment. You will live a life of grumbling and complaining. And the reason is, is because God doesn't deliver oftentimes how you want things to be delivered. That the life of entitlement or the life of God owes me something translates into Jesus not being one to satisfy you. In fact, if you've got that entitlement attitude in your heart, then Jesus won't satisfy. Actually, he'll probably annoy you and frustrate you because there's things that come into your life that you, you don't want, you don't think you need, that you wouldn't dial up. And so at the very beginning, who does Jesus satisfy? He's making this point loud and clear to his disciples, Philip and Andrew, and then to the Jews, that Jesus satisfies those who are empty-handed and who are humble and who come knowing they bring absolutely nothing to the table. So second question, how does Jesus satisfy? And this brings us to the next part of the, of the miracle. So Jesus takes this bread, the five loaves of barley, of barley loaves from this kid, gives thanks and distributes it amongst the people, 5,000 plus. And there's two key details that teach a lot. Verse 11, look at the end of verse 11. It says, as much as they wanted. Think all you can eat buffet. They ate as much as they wanted until they were as full as they could be. And then we read in verse 13 that the disciples gathered the pieces of bread left over and filled up 12 baskets. Now, why 12 baskets? Well, this is symbolic, right, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God is saying very clearly there that he has abundance resources. He has more than enough to supply the need of his people. Abundant provision. But here's the question. What kind of provision is he talking about? What kind of provision is, is Jesus talking about as he does this miracle? He's gonna tell us in verses 25 to 35 because what we see is after Jesus does this, he crosses over the sea and the crowds that were fed chase after him. And they come to him. And in verse 26, right, he says something to them and here's why he says this because he knows they have a certain type of provision in mind. And so he says in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, they're fixated on material provision. They're fixated on a circumstantial provision. And Jesus knows he's talking about an entirely different kind of provision. So look what he says. In verse 27, do not labor or do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And so they say, okay, Jesus, then what, what work must we do to get this eternal life? And he says in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe me, Jesus says, trust me. And he's making an incredibly important distinction here. 
What God is saying is what matters most is not what Jesus can do for you, but who Jesus is. Um, Let me say that again. What matters most is not what Jesus can do for you, but who Jesus is. See, God is putting a demand on these people and he's saying, believe, trust in Jesus and who he is, not merely what he can provide for you. See, a completely different kind of provision that Jesus is talking about here. My wife uh, years ago, this was years ago when our daughter, Kaylin, was, was small. She was little. And uh, Kim went into Publix to do some grocery shopping. And uh, what do you do when you go into Publix with young toddlers? You get the free cookie, right? You get the free cookie. So Kim walks in, goes to the deli, gets the free cookie, and begins moving out to shop. Well, shortly into the journey... Kaylin drops her cookie on the floor and World War III ensues. She went ballistic. She started crying, screaming, world's coming to an end. Mommy, are you gonna get me another cookie? And Kim, and she'll she'll still tell this story. It was one of those moments where she saw this incredible teachable moment. Instead of saying, Kaylin, we're going back to the deli to get you another cookie. She said, Kaylin, trust me. But mommy, are you going to get me another cookie? Trust me. And the entire journey back to the deli where she was going to get another cookie, she said, trust me. Kaylin, trust me. Because she didn't want her comfort and her assurance to be in the cookie. She wanted her comfort and her assurance to be in mommy. And it was a beautiful picture of the nature of trust that Jesus wants our trust to be in him, period. Has he promised us great things? Yes. Is the new heavens and the new earth coming? Yes. Is the cookie there? Yes. But Jesus says, I want you to trust me. No matter what. I want your heart. (laughs) I want you to trust me and to believe me. Do you know how long it took Israel to get from Egypt, which this story we're going to see, we're going to build it out, from Egypt to the promised land? Do you know how long it took them? 40 years. Do you know what a straight line journey was from Egypt to the promised land? Several weeks. Now you say, why in the world did this journey for for Israel last 40 years? when it could have been two weeks. Now, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the prominent reasons is this, is that God was trying to teach them to trust, to trust him, not to trust ultimately in what he was bringing them, which was the promised land, but to trust him and to build that trust and to cultivate that trust. How does Jesus satisfy? He gives you himself. He gives you himself, and that's enough. The person of Jesus, who he is. And every turn that Jesus takes you on in this wilderness, you know, we're just, we're in the parallel. Israel and Egypt to the promised land in the desert, in between Christ's death and resurrection, second coming, new heavens, new earth, we're in the wilderness. We're moving. 
Every turn that Jesus takes you on is with great intention and purpose. And it's to, it is to establish a deep trust of him, that you would know him and trust him. At the end of chapter six, you know, right towards the end of chapter six, Jesus starts saying some really hard things. We don't have time to go into it, but he says, eat on my flesh, drink of my blood. And people start peeling away. People start walking away from Jesus. It's just incredibly hard what he seems to be saying. And so they're peeling away and Jesus, Jesus says to his disciples, to the 12, do you wanna go away as well? And then I love Peter's confession in verse 64 or verse 68. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're it, Jesus. People are peeling away. This thing's getting really hard, but you're it. Where else are we gonna go? We've trusted you. You have the words of eternal life. We believe you. We're not going anywhere. It's a beautiful confession. You know, when life starts to, when the circumstances of life start to peel you away from the Savior, it's the confession that says, Jesus, you're it. I have nowhere else to go and you're trustworthy and I believe you and I'm gonna follow you. You know, wilderness is tough. It's the, I, I can't find a job, but Jesus, I trust you. I can't seem to get healthy, but Jesus, I trust you. My children are going off the deep end, but Jesus, I trust you. My marriage is so strained right now, but Jesus, I trust you. Finances are so tight, but Jesus, I trust you. My parents are getting divorced, but Jesus, I trust you. And then just the general, life hurts, but Jesus, I trust you. How does Jesus satisfy? He, he gives you himself. And that's enough. Third question. What does Jesus satisfy? What does Jesus satisfy? There are two verses in this miracle account, verses 1 to 14, that really bookend the story and give the context for it. I've alluded to it. But verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This was Passover which means this was the annual celebration where Israel got together, the Jews got together and, and celebrated and remembered how God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea and fed them manna in the desert miraculously, along with quail for meat at night, water from the rock. And then the other bookend, so that's one that tells us that this is something about that story of manna in the desert. The second is, is verse 14. This is at the end of the, the miracle account. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, who is the prophet that they're saying is to come into the world? Well, it's Deuteronomy 18, 15, where it says that God promises to raise up a prophet like Moses for his people. So here it is. Jesus does this miracle and it starts clicking for them. 
They're going, wow, this is Jesus fulfilling what happened with, our, 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 with Moses bringing our people through the desert and, and God feeding them manna. And so it clicks. This is the greater prophet. This is the greater Moses leading a new exodus and a better exodus from slavery to sin. Just as Israelites were brought out of slavery, this is Jesus saying, I am bringing you out of slavery and out of the enslaved desires that you have. You know, when you think about the Exodus story, when, when God was bringing them through the desert, through the wilderness, 40 years worth, there were numerous times where God's people said, we wanna go back to Egypt. We wanna go back to slavery. In one instance, it was their physical hunger. They, they, there was no food. And so they started complaining and grumbling against Moses and against God and said, you know what? We want to go back to Egypt where we had good meals, steak dinners. But they seemed to forget how awfully tough it was and how harsh it was under slavery. And then the other instance is as they're getting to the promised land, they send spies out to check out the land. They come back and they all say they, they were fearful of the people in the land. And out of their fear, they say to Moses, they say, we want to go back to Egypt, forgetting how fearful it was in Egypt when they were un under awful slavery. It's a picture of our enslaved desires. And if you drill down into your heart, you know exactly what this is. It's these deep desires that I started out with that we have, that we're somehow convinced that something in this world is going to satisfy them. And so we go and seek satisfaction and doesn't quite do it, and we go back again, we know exactly what it means to have enslaved desires that ping back to something that, that seems in this world to want to satisfy. They, when they were wanting to go back to Egypt, were looking for the very thing that would kill them, wanting to go back to the very thing that was killing them and bringing death that God had rescued them out of. July 30th, 1945, the battle cruiser USS Indianapolis, it was returning from a mission where it was delivering uranium to the allied forces in the Pacific Ocean. And it never made it back. On the way back, it was hit with a Japanese torpedo. Went down in 12 minutes. There were 1,200 on board. 300 died immediately. 900 were left in the Pacific Ocean for four days and five nights. At the end, once they got through the entire four days and five nights before rescue, uh, only 316 of those 900 had survived. And one of them was the chief medical officer. And listen to what he says as he shares his experience out in the Pacific Ocean with all these men as the chief medical officer. Listen to what he said. There was nothing I could do. Nothing I could do but give advice. Bury the dead at sea, save the life jackets, and try to keep the men from drinking the water. When the hot sun came out and we were, we were in this crystal clear ocean, we were so thirsty. You couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, you take away their hope, you take away their water and food, and they would drink the salt water and they would go fast. 
I can remember striking the ones who were drinking the salt water to try to stop them. They would get dehydrated. They would become maniacal. There were mass, mass hallucinations. The irony of, of, of that story, the irony is that when you drink salt water, your body can't handle it. You get more and more dehydrated and you get more thirsty. And so you drink more salt water and you get more dehydrated and you get more thirsty and you drink and drink until literally you drink yourself to death. And that's what happened. It's a graphic picture, but it is a spot on picture of our enslaved desires. That we, we, we go to something and, and, and it doesn't satisfy and we're hurt by it. And then we, we go back again, somehow convinced that it's gonna quench the thirst and satisfy the hunger. And that repetition and that cycle happens over and over. And Jesus, after he feeds the 5,000, he stands up in verse 35 and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me, trusts me, shall never thirst. What does Jesus mean by this? It's an incredible promise. He says, on the bread of life, if you come to me, you will not hunger. If you come to me and believe in me, you will not thirst. What Jesus is not saying is that suddenly your desires just shut off. Right? You don't hunger anymore. You don't thirst anymore. No, you keep hungering and thirsting. His point is that when you come to him, you find satisfaction for those deep desires. And that when you keep going back to the things of the world to attempt to satisfy those desires, it's like drinking salt water. It's like drinking salt water. It offers the promise to quench, but ultimately it kills you. And so Jesus is saying, come to me. I will quench your thirst. I will, I will satisfy your hunger. And this is exactly what he means in verses 47 to 51. Look at it. In 47 to 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. You know what he means by that? Your fathers, the ones that were in the desert coming out of Egypt, going to the promised land. He says, they ate the manna. They received the material circumstantial provision and they ate it and guess what? They still died, why? Because they never trusted. They never believed the disobedient people. They never trusted and believed the provision that was behind the material provision that ultimately God providing the manna miraculously and the quail and the meat and the water from the rock that ultimately that was his provision so that they would trust him, believe him but they didn't. You know, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and as we go through these I am statements in John, you'll see it. The I am, that, that is the personal covenant name of God that shows up in Exodus 3 when Moses meets God at the burning bush. And so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's not just, he's not just saying, I'm the better Moses that leads a better Exodus. What he's saying is, I was the one speaking in the burning bush. I was the one speaking from the mountain. I'm the one that was the water coming from the rock. Come to me and be satisfied. Have your thirst quenched. 
In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says this, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus created you with deep desires. And he satisfies those who come empty-handed and humble, believing they bring nothing to the table. And he satisfies not, not by giving material provision, though he does circumstantial provision, though he does at times, he satisfies by giving himself who he is, trustworthy, worthy of you laying your life down and surrendering to him. And he satisfies those enslaved desires that keep going back to the things of the world, but that in Jesus are completely satisfied. Let's pray. Oh, Father, every person in this room understands the, the challenge of trusting. When material provision has run out, when circumstantial provision isn't coming through, to be left at the place of having simply to trust and believe you, Jesus. And oh, Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would, you would make hearts come alive to trust your Son, to find life in your Son, to find infinite joy in your Son, to find hope in your Son. We confess this morning as a people that we need you. Jesus, we need you. Life in the wilderness is difficult. It's hard. It's trying. We confess that we need you. And if you deem to change our circumstances, great. If you deem to provide materially, great. But if you don't, we trust you. No matter what, where else can we go? as Peter confessed at the end of this miraculous feeding. So Father, as we close in worship, would we believe what we're singing? That we need you. And that we want to be with you. And that we long to trust you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.